Today we return to our study of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, to the book of Romans in the New Testament. We began this study many, many months ago, earlier in this year, and we left off in chapter 3, and so we're going to pick back up exactly where we left off, which is verses 21 through 26 of chapter 3, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. It begins on page 940, and the Bibles are provided for you, so if you have a copy of that or another uh, Bible that you have, please open up there in preparation a study of this passage. I want to say just by way of introduction that these verses, verses 21 through 26 of Romans 3, have been called by Donald Gray Barnhouse the most important verses in all the Bible. John Piper calls it the most important paragraph in the Bible. Leon Morris says it may be the most important paragraph that's ever been written. And I have to confess that after years of study and spending time in Romans and other places in the Scripture, I agree with them. I don't know of a more important passage of Scripture than what we're going to start looking at this morning in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. In this passage, we have a clear explanation of the message of the gospel. We have Paul very succinctly stating what he is going to elaborate in this letter and other letters that he writes, that salvation comes to us by grace alone. We receive it through faith alone. And that faith must be rooted in, anchored in Jesus Christ alone. That's the good news of the gospel. As we will see, this passage, Romans 3, 21 through 26, represents a significant transition in this letter that Paul has written. Let me just remind you that Paul sends this letter to a church that he had never visited. He hopes to visit them before too long, as he tells us in the closing chapter. And he knew some of the members of the church, but he himself had never been there. It's a letter that he took three months to write. And so he had time to contemplate what it was he wanted to say. He had opportunity to organize this letter in ways that we don't always see in some of the letters that he writes. But it is very clearly, thoughtfully organized as he gives an explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and then implications and applications of that gospel. In fact, if you remember... The letter opens in the first 15 verses with just introductory remarks. Paul expressing who he is and acknowledging the grace of God in that church and how he wants to bestow a blessing to them and receive blessing from them. And then after that introduction in the first 15 verses, he announces the theme of the letter in Romans 1, 16 and 17. Just look back there, Romans 1, 16 and 17, because here he lays out his thesis. He lays out the whole point that he's going to elaborate for the rest of the letter. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this gospel because this gospel has the power to change people's lives. When people come to understand and believe this message, their lives are transformed. Now, Paul knew that because that is what happened to him. 
His life had been transformed from a man who hated Jesus Christ, who persecuted Christians, tried to put Christians to death, into a Christian himself, and an apostle of Jesus, who became a great missionary, preacher, and theologian of the gospel. Well, having said that in verse 16 and verse 17, he goes on and explains how the gospel does this transforming work. He says it does it by providing the righteousness that God requires. Righteousness that we need, but that we cannot provide by our own efforts. He says this righteousness is provided in such a way that it can be received through faith. And it is this gift of righteousness that allows us to be justified before God. To to stand in God's courtroom and to hear Him say, not guilty, forgiven, righteous in my sight. Well, once Paul's announced the theme of the letter in those two verses, he begins to elaborate this message of justification by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. And he does it by immediately trying to establish with clarity and with an overwhelming certainty the reason we need to be justified. And so he elaborates the teaching of sin. He starts in verse 18 of chapter 1, showing that people in this world are not naturally good because of sin. We are naturally ungodly and unrighteous. And in fact, he says, we actually suppress the truth. The truth about God is naturally suppressed by people because of sin. Look at verses 21 and 22 of chapter 1. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And so the whole world is under condemnation by God because of sin, and this is what sin does to people. It causes us to deny the truth about God. Everybody, Paul says, knows God. That's the truth. Everybody has a knowledge of God. Atheists have a knowledge of God. Well, then why does anybody deny the existence of God? Well, we're told because in their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. They try to figure out ways to deny the reality of God. And they do this while enjoying All of the incredible blessings that God provides to people day in and day out. So they breathe God's air. And process it with lungs that He has given them. As their heart beats and distributes that oxygen throughout their bodies that God Himself designed. All the while saying, there's no God. They enjoy the good things in life like delectable food that he gives, enjoying it with taste buds that he created while denying God. They look at sunrises and sunsets and take pictures and write poetry about it, not realizing that these are the creative displays of God. They have relationships 
that bring good things into their lives. And they enjoy those relationships. And they sing about them. And yet, try to deny God. God has made us in His image. Because of that, the Bible says, everybody has some knowledge of Him. Though many people try to deny it. Well, you know what this means. This means on the day of judgment, when everybody's called to stand before God, there'll be no excuse. Nobody will be able to say, but God, we didn't know you existed. We had no idea that you're, you're so magnificent, so glorious. If we had known, God will be able to say to them, no, you knew. You just tried to live as if it weren't true. Now, that has implications for everybody. Everybody you know, everybody in this room, you and me. It means that because there is a God and because God has created us in such a way and placed us in a world that he's created so that we can't honestly go on living, pretending that he doesn't exist, that every one of us is accountable to him. Every one of us will stand one day and give an account for how we live the life that he gave to us. If you've not thought about that or you've not prepared for that, then the good news is God has brought you here today to hear his word taught, to hear it sung, to be among his people so that you can learn the truth, the way that you can be reconciled to this God whom one day you'll stand before in judgment. And our hope and our prayer is that before you leave the room today, you will come to know God savingly. You'll be reconciled to Him. You'll experience forgiveness that He provides to people like you and me through what He has already done through Jesus Christ. Well, Paul goes on in the rest of chapter 1 and through chapter 2 and even into the first eight verses of chapter 3 to show that this reality of universal sin that has been so wicked and so perverse and has worked in so many different ways... It is true of Jews and Gentiles, religious people and unreligious people. In other words, everybody in the whole world has this reality true of them. Everybody is sinful. Everybody, because of sin, is naturally under God's condemnation, that is, under his wrath. And then, to kind of close the argument, in verses 9 through 20, in chapter 3, Paul takes a string of Old Testament verses and he's just proving, especially to Jews, but he's proving to all of us that this is the truth about humanity. You read those verses, starting in, in verse 10, down through verse 18, and that's, that's your resume. That's how God writes your resume. And, and you can't read that honestly and believe what it says without recognizing sin has done a number on me. Sin has come and made things far, far from the way that they're supposed to be. Well, as Paul labors the point of wickedness and the universality of sin in, in that opening section, he does so so that he can make a point. That he begins in verse 19 of chapter 3 when he says, I'm doing this so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole, whole world held accountable to God. In other words, he's like a lawyer making his closing argument here saying, this is the reality 
The whole world is tarnished, enslaved by sin. The whole world is under the wrath of God because of sin. And if you're going to stand up and try to argue contrary to that, the only honest thing you can do is put your hand over your mouth. The case has been demonstrably, overwhelmingly proven. And then in verse 20, he summarizes all of this by saying, For by works of the law, no human being will be satisfied in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So Paul wraps up the first part of his argument in explaining the gospel by painting the backdrop against which the gospel shines bright, the backdrop of our sin. And he says, this makes it evident that nobody is going to get out of the predicament that sin has created through their own efforts. Your efforts can't make you good enough for God. You can't provide what God requires, righteousness, by keeping the law. By saying, you know, I'm going to do better tomorrow. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I resolve to change my ways. Paul says, no, you won't be justified in God's sight by those efforts of keeping the law because all of those efforts of keeping the law will simply result in a righteousness that is still stained by sin. Maybe you've heard the verse in Isaiah 64, 6 that says, by nature, all of our righteousnesses are like filthy rags in God's sight. So you see what this means? That outside of God's grace, outside of His provision of righteousness, you take the best things you've ever done. You, you take the commandments that you say, okay, I know what God wants. I'm going I'm to do this. I'm going to do this so that you know, God will think, okay, you know, you've done your best. You're really trying. You hold that up to God, and in God's eyes, it's like dirty rags. That's the, the height. That's the purity. The perfection of the righteousness that God requires. Now, this truth is so important. We teach it to our children. In our children's catechism, we ask them this question, can anyone be saved by his own righteousness? Kids, you know the answer to that, right? No. No one's good enough for God. And that's the truth. That's what Paul is teaching in these first chapters of Romans. It's a dire situation. We're required to pay that which we do not have the resources to pay. God requires us to be righteous. We cannot manufacture righteousness. And Paul intends for us to feel the seriousness and the weight of our dilemma. So our mouths are stopped. No argument can be made in response. We can't be declared righteous in His sight because sin has left us unrighteous. Well, it's at just this point that our text today begins. It's at just this point that Paul opens up the only hope for people who are in this kind of predicament. So follow along as I begin reading in verse 21 of Romans chapter 3. I'm going to read down through verse 26. Paul says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The righteousness that we need, God gives. That's what Paul is saying. He requires it. We need it. We can't attain it through our efforts. But the good news is, God gives it. Paul explains this in a very careful yet succinct way in these six verses. And this morning what I want to do is start looking at these verses by focusing on verses 21 through 24. And then God willing, next Sunday, come back and look at verses 25 and 26. So look at verse 21. What is Paul saying there? Well, he's saying that righteousness from God is manifested. At the very heart of Paul's explanation of the gospel is this little phrase, the righteousness of God. He uses it eight times in this letter. We've already come across it twice in our study in Verse 17 of chapter 1, then again in chapter 3 and verse 5. What Paul means by this phrase, the righteousness of God, is not so much the righteousness that God himself is. He's not thinking primarily about God's moral attribute of righteousness. But rather he's thinking about the righteousness that God requires and that God alone can provide. Well, Paul's argument is that nobody has this righteousness. It's interesting that he begins this section, this transition against the backdrop of how bleak our human situation is because of our unrighteousness with those two words, but now, but now. Martin Lloyd-Jones says there are no more wonderful words in the whole of scripture than these two words, but now. What vital words These are, there are logical implications that Paul is making from this phrase. His whole argument from 118 to 320 has been to show that everybody's sinful, nobody's righteous. God's law makes this incredibly obvious. In verse 10 of chapter 3, none is righteous, no, not one, but now. But now, God has done something. You can't do anything You're enslaved to sin. You're unrighteous, still liable to God for righteousness. You can't provide it, but now God has done something. Paul's also making the point that in the economy of history, what God has done from Old Testament to what now we look at in terms of the New Testament era, God has acted in a way. During the Old Testament era, the system of laws and ceremonies provided no righteousness They provided no salvation for sinners. They pointed forward to a day when righteousness would come, when salvation would be accomplished, but they themselves could not accomplish it. But now that Jesus has come into the world, but now that Jesus has done everything that God has called him to do, God's plan of salvation has been fully revealed. Now, in Christ, the righteousness that God requires has been provided. You remember the story of those 12 young boys in Thailand that got trapped in that cave? 
because of a flash flood. Uh, it's from ages 11 to 17, most of them teenagers. Their coach was 25 years old, and they interrupted a birthday party on June 23rd, 2018. They interrupted the birthday party to go for a brief visit to a cave that they'd explored many times. And after they entered the cave, they had just gone for a few minutes. They were only going to stay there about an hour or so. And water from the previous day's rain swept in, flooding the cave. And so they couldn't get back. And the water kept rising. They had to keep going deeper and deeper until finally, two and a half miles in, they found a a ledge, a rocky ledge, that was dry. And they crawled up on it. Well, after several hours, when they didn't come back to the party, the parents got nervous and worried, and they went to the cave, and they saw their bicycles, and they realized something horrible's happened. And there immediately began to be a rescue effort put in motion. It was a fascinating thing to watch because it became an international event. The Thai Navy SEALs led the way, but there were other special forces from different nations around the world that joined in. There were experts in underwater maneuvers who volunteered to come in, scuba divers and those that were trained in exploring caves. What happened was these experts began to try to find the boys, not knowing if they were alive or not, because the boys were only going to be there for an hour. They didn't take any food with them. They didn't take any water with them. And on that little ledge where they sat, they had no food. There, there was some moisture forming on the walls of the cave, and so they were able to, to drink that to sustain themselves. But their situation was bleak. What heightened the danger was monsoon season was just starting. And once the first monsoon came through, there would be no way to even try to think about a rescue effort. So day after day, these boys and their coach sat there waiting trying to remain hopeful, but being completely helpless, knowing they couldn't do anything to change their situations. Finally, nine days later, two British divers went further into the cave than any of the rescue efforts had gone before. They emerged in this small pocket of air, and they shined their lights on 13 startled, starving faces. Abdul Samoun, one of the teenagers who was involved, described that moment as a miracle. He said it was hard to believe. I can imagine it was. I mean, try putting yourself in that situation. You're sitting there, and it's pitch black. You've got no food. You're licking the walls of the cave to get moisture. All you, all you have is the battery-operated flashlights that you can temporarily used for some kind of dispelling of the darkness. The waters are rising. There's no way you can get yourself out. And for nine long days and nights, you sit there in utter darkness. 1,944 successive hours, each one of them passing with less hope than the one before. So you're sitting there staring in the darkness as you have done. For those previous eight days. And out of this pool of water. Appear in their scuba gear. Two British divers with flashlights. 
I mean, how startling, how amazing that scene must have been. You've been lost. You've been hopeless. You've been helpless. But now, you've been found. You've been saved. Somebody has come to rescue you. This is what Paul wants us to sense as he writes this portion of the letter. We're without hope. But now God's done something. And that but now is to signal to us to focus in on and to let the impact of what He has done wash over us so that we will understand more and more and more how amazing it is that He would rescue sinners like us. It's righteousness that saves us. And righteousness that comes from apart, apart from the law. Righteousness that does not come from our own efforts. Righteousness that we can never attain by anything that we do. The law can't give us this righteousness. But the law and the prophets testified to this righteousness. In other words, Paul wants to make sure that we understand that this is not some last minute plan of God. But this was something that was planned from before the foundation of the world and all the Old Testament makes it evident. So he's already quoted the prophet Habakkuk in chapter 1, verse 17 of this letter. The just shall live by faith. Those who are counted righteous in God's sight will be counted righteous because not of their efforts, but through faith in the Lord Jesus. In the next chapter, chapter 4, he's going to cite Abraham and David as key examples of gospel faith. Testifying to the coming righteousness. Paul refers to the Old Testament no less than 85 times in this letter. So while the law cannot provide to you a ladder that you can climb up and attain righteousness, the law does shine a light forward to the righteousness that God Himself will one day provide that you and I now look back on and say, yes, He has provided. He's provided in His Son, Jesus Christ. We can't do what God requires None of our trying will be good enough for him. But the good news is that God himself has done what he requires. He's manifested the righteousness we need. And he's done it by sending his son into the world. But who is this righteousness for? I mean, who who gets to experience this righteousness? Well, look at verses 22 and 23. Paul answers that question. This righteousness that God's manifested is for all sinners who believe. You see, he makes the point at the end of verse 22 and verse 23 that all of us are in the same dilemma as sinners. For there's no distinction, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, again, Paul has made this point from chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20. He's specifically underscored how it's true for Gentiles and then he's also shown how it is true for Jews, religious people as well. With regard to the one who think that there is no God to be concerned about, he has shown that their immorality will be stored up against them because God requires just righteousness. To those who think, well, I'm religious and so I'm doing my best, God's going to accept that. He says, no, your religious efforts are no better and the righteousness that God requires, you can't provide. All have sinned, he says in verse 23. We've all missed the mark. None of us measures up. All of us break his commandments. And then you notice what he says after it. And fall short of the glory of God. Lack the glory of God. 
failed to achieve the glory of God. God created Adam and Eve in his very image, which means that when he created them, they possessed something of his glory. They were able to perceive his glory, to recognize his glory, and to participate in his glory as his creatures. When sin came into the world, that was lost. And part of what salvation does is to begin the process of restoring that to us. Paul makes this plain in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. He says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. As Christians, we behold the Lord, we know the Lord, we're being transformed from one degree of glory to the other. Sin shattered that glory. It leaves us without that glory, without God and the ability in and of ourselves to know God. Well, that's true for everybody. We're all in the same predicament because of sin. We're all without righteousness, unable even to recognize the glory of God. He says there is no distinction. But there's also no distinction when it comes to who gets the benefits of the righteousness that God has manifested. Everybody who believes gets the same benefits. We get righteousness. In verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For everyone who believes, Jew, Gentile, moral, immoral, it doesn't matter. It's received how? By trusting Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God that he requires of us, that he provides for us, it comes and is received by us through faith. That faith is not just a general idea of God and yeah, I believe in him. It's a faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to the way John Murray explains this. In representing Jesus Christ as the object of faith, the apostle brings to the forefront a consideration which had not been expressly stated so far in this epistle. The faith that is brought into relation to justification is not a general faith in God. Far less is it faith without well-defined and intelligent content. It is faith directed to Christ. And when he is denominated Jesus Christ, these titles are regulant with all that Jesus was and is personally, historically, and officially. So the righteousness that we do not have by nature that God requires of us is manifested, it's provided by God in Christ, and it's received by anyone and everyone who will trust Christ. Everyone who will bow to him as Lord. Everyone who will renounce sin and say, I now look to Christ and Christ alone as my Lord and Savior. You see what a magnificent truth this is? God is teaching us here through the apostle that if we turn from sin and trust Christ Jesus as Lord, he will accept us. By sin, we're estranged from him. We're under wrath, condemnation. When Christ has come, and done everything necessary to attain the righteousness that God requires, if we look to Christ, then God accepts us. We're reconciled. Not because we've done anything. Not because we're so good. Not because we intend to be better. But because Jesus Christ has earned what God requires for us. So I just want to ask you, are you trusting Christ? Can you say Christ is my righteousness? Is that your hope? 
If it is, then be assured today, God accepts you. God is reconciled to you because of Christ. If not, then friend, turn from your sin right now and trust Jesus. Believe Christ right now because He came into the world to secure the righteousness that you need. And that righteousness that you need that Jesus has earned can be yours by trusting Him. Trust Him now. You might think, well, that's too simple. Well, it's what the gospel is. Quit trying to do what you think will earn God's favor and take God at His word and believe Christ. Trust Him and you'll be accepted by Him. God has manifested righteousness. It's for all sinners who believe. The third point that Paul makes in our text is found in the first part of verse 24. This righteousness comes to believers as a gift of God's grace. You see that? He says, and are justified by His grace as a gift. Believers are declared righteous by God's grace. That's what justified means, by the way. It's it's a declarative act of God. It is something that He decides. It is a pronouncement. It is not a reference to becoming personally holy or personally righteous. It's a legal term. It's a forensic term. It comes to us from the law courts. It's what the judge decides when he's considered the evidence and he lowers the gavel and he says, not guilty, acquitted, declared righteous. This word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures in Deuteronomy 25.1 gives us a sense of its meaning where we read there, if there's a dispute between men and they come into a court and judges decide between them, acquitting, justifying the innocent and condemning the guilty, there it is. There it is. Being acquitted, being forgiven, being justified in God's courtroom. We cannot, we cannot stand before God in our own efforts, with our own resources, and say, God, is this good enough? And hope that he will say, yeah, that's good enough. You tried your best. I forgive you. But what we can do is say, God, I know it's not good enough. But I throw myself on Jesus Christ as Lord. I trust him. And God looks at his son and he says, perfect. Good enough. Righteous. And because you are now in my son, because you're trusting Christ, I forgive you. I acquit you. I justify you. It's in Christ. And it's holy by God's grace. Paul explicitly states this and then he reiterates the point by adding as a gift, completely God's gift. You see what Paul's doing here? He's making sure that we don't mistake how this righteousness comes to us. This righteousness is completely gratuitous to us. We don't deserve it. We don't earn it. There's nothing we can ever do that we can somehow hope in as bringing it to us, but rather it comes to us by sheer grace. It's God's gift. This is difficult for many people to believe. We can understand in one sense why that is so. It's difficult because, you know, we are taught and the world sometimes maybe often works this way that you don't get what you don't earn. There's, there's no free lunch. And yet, some people who believe that convince themselves that they do deserve God's forgiveness. 
because they have worked hard. And they are better than a lot of other people. And so they let their minds run down that track and they deceive themselves into thinking, you know, surely God is going to accept me trusting themselves rather than trusting what God says. But other people say, well, yeah, we know there's no free lunch. We know you only get what you deserve. And I think about what I deserve. No hope for me. Because I know how wicked I am. And so I'll just try to gut it out in this life without any real hope that God could ever reconcile himself to me. Well, here's the good news for people who think in both of these directions. God saves sinners by grace alone. It's not how good you are. It's not how bad you are. It is how amazingly wonderful and kind he is in providing salvation in his son. It's a gift. It's a gift. Do you know how you benefit from a gift? You receive it. You take it. You know how you benefit from the gift of righteousness? You receive it. You take it. How? How? By faith. You believe God. And you look to Jesus Christ, his son, and you take God at his word and you entrust yourself to Christ. And as you trust Christ, the gift of righteousness becomes yours and God accepts you for Christ's sake. This is what Paul is arguing for. When you trust Christ, sin no longer condemns you. When you trust Christ, you no longer have to try to perform so that God will be for you. Because you know he's for you because he's given you his son. Brothers and sisters, we've got to keep pounding this into our thinking. We've got to let this percolate down into our affection so that it will affect the way that we feel, the way that we respond. It sets us free. It sets us free from trying to impress people. It sets us free from trying to hide from God. Because we know that our righteousness is in Christ. It's secure. And for Christ's sake, God accepts us. So God has manifested His righteousness. This righteousness is for all sinners who believe. It comes to believers as a gift of God's grace. Then finally this morning, I want you to see in the last or the middle part of verse 24, second part, Paul begins to tell us how this righteousness has been attained. It has been secured by the redemption in Christ. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption. What an important word in thinking about our salvation. It means to ransom by way of the payment of a price. It includes the idea of being set free. So you're set free because your ransom has been paid. You're released from bondage. This word was used to describe what would happen when prisoners of war were released after the payment of a ransom price. It was used to describe the ransoming of slaves, again, through the payment of a price. In the Old Testament, this word was used for the setting free of a prisoner who's under a death sentence because of a crime committed. Well, if our justification before God has come by redemption, the payment of a ransom that has set us free, who paid it? 
And what's involved in the payment? Well, Paul states the answer to that question at the very end of verse 24. In Christ Jesus. This redemption has come by His life and His work. Jesus is the one who's redeemed us. He's the one who paid our ransom. He is the one who came from God to rescue sinners. This is taught throughout all the New Testament. Jesus Himself made this point in Mark 10.45 when He said, The Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 1.7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Now Paul's going to elaborate the significance of this in verses 25 and 26, which God willing we'll come back to next week and meditate on together. But stop and consider what it means to say that our salvation, our justification, our righteousness, what we need to be accepted by God has been provided through the redemption of Christ Jesus. He redeemed us. He purchased us. That's what he was doing on the cross. That's why he shed his blood. In order to make us right with God. What kind of love is this? What kind of grace is this? That God would give up his only begotten son in order to redeem us through the shedding of his blood. To make those of us who were rebels. Sinful. Under his condemnation. To make us his children. To accept us into his family. What a cost. How should we then live. Who have been redeemed at such a cost. It ought to impact us. It ought to change the way we think. It ought to change how we spend our time. Listen to what Paul writes in Galatians 2.20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. When Paul thinks about what it means to be redeemed by the blood of Jesus. He said, my life's not my own anymore. He goes on, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's saying, he redeemed me. I belong to him. Or listen to the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14 and following. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. What should the fact that we've been redeemed at such a great cost do to us? It should change the way we think. How we think about our lives. How we order our lives. How we spend our time. How we relate to people. Because we have been bought at a great price. Once those Thai boys were trapped in that Tham Luang cave complex. And then nine days later were found. It took another six days of around the clock 
planning and working to make arrangements to actually attempt a rescue operation. And once the attempt began, it took an additional three days to get them out. It required specially fitted masks, medical attention, required special air tanks, and they got them out one by one over a three-day period. All of them were were rescued. But in the course of the preparation for that rescue effort, there had to be a trail marked underwater, and there had to be air tanks left at strategic places. And a Thai Navy SEAL by the name of Saman Kunin, who was on one of those efforts to place an air tank at a strategic place, couldn't make it back to the surface in time. And he died. Several days after the boys were rescued, they're in the hospital, and the doctors deemed them to be stable enough to tell them the news. They were told about Kunin's death. And they wept at the news. And they talked verbally, wondering why. Why would this man give up his life in order to save us? He sacrificed all so that they might be rescued from their hopeless and helpless condition. He ransomed them. He redeemed them at the cost of his own life. Brothers and sisters, that's what Jesus Christ has done for us. He came into the world as a real man. And then he voluntarily laid down his life in order that we might be reconciled to God. It's grace. He did this as a gift. What we receive by trusting Christ and having his righteousness credited to us, what we receive freely was costly to him. It cost him his life. So how then should we live? What difference does this make in our day-to-day living? It should make all the difference in the world. It should cause us to be humbled before him, filled with wonder and awe that we have been so loved and that we have such a Savior. Because death is the wages of sin, Somebody must die for our sin. Friend, if you're here this morning, you're not trusting Christ. I hope that you will leave at least knowing this. That you have sinned against God and are under his condemnation. And somebody must die for your sin. The good news is Christ came into the world to save sinners by his death. And if you'll turn from sin and trust him, God will accept you. You will be saved. We cannot earn what God requires. But the righteousness that we need, God gives. We can't deserve it. We can only receive it. We can only receive it by faith in Jesus Christ, in whom redemption has been accomplished. So brothers and sisters, we should revel in this grace. We should glory in it. We should think about it. We should learn more about it. We should seek to understand it. And then we should try our best this week to explain it to somebody who doesn't know anything about it. Think about this. Look for an opportunity. Pray for an opportunity to express to someone what your God has done for sinners. 
in sending his son into the world to earn righteousness so that by faith in him, we might be reconciled. And live this week remembering what God requires, you can't provide. Because he requires spotless righteousness. But the righteousness that he requires, he gives. And he gives it in Jesus Christ to everyone who will believe. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit and for the way you teach us in the word the truth about Jesus. Help us to believe. Help us to take you at your word and to believe that you are for us in Christ Jesus. I pray today that you would open eyes that have been blinded to this truth and reveal Christ and cause the glory of your salvation and your son to be magnified in the salvation of sinners today. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.